Hi, I'm Lou Graham, and you're listening to the Rock Solid Podcast. to be this is small town music this is big town music he's ahead of his time you know but he can't use it if only he could prove it well tomorrow's just a song away a song away a song away Hey everybody, welcome to Rock Solid, the comedy podcast for all things music, both new and classic. I'm Pat Francis, and joining me in the Zoom room today is the multi-platinum original lead vocalist of Foreigner. He was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2013. Please welcome one of the greatest singers in rock and roll history, Mr. Lou Graham. Hello, Lou. How are you doing? Doing fine. Thanks for the wonderful intro. Yeah, you got you to feel good when, uh, when someone gives you an intro like that. <laughs> Boy, I do. I do. But it's uh, but it's all true. Uh, because if I didn't believe it, I wouldn't say it. I've been uh, I've been putting my notes together, Lou. There's so much stuff to cover with you. It's it's just such an impressive career, and I'm so happy that you agreed to do this with me. I want to throw out a couple things for people. All things Lou Graham can be found at LouGrahamOfficial.com. On Instagram, it's at official Lou Graham, and on Twitter, it's at Graham Lou. So make note of that, and that's where you're going to find all the stuff about Lou Graham. You're also going to be uh, doing some tour dates pretty soon. You're on tour with Asia featuring John Payne. Yes, yeah. that's correct, yeah. And I live in Los Angeles. You're going to be rolling through Southern California in November, so I'm definitely going to be there. So, okay, Good. got all the promotion out of the way. First of all, I want to talk first, before we get into the fun stuff, I want to talk about 24 years ago, you were diagnosed with a benign brain tumor, which was removed. How is your health today? How are you feeling, Lou? My health is, uh, is considering what I've been through, is, is very good. Excellent. Uh, I, I still have to uh, take uh, um, quite a bit of medication because of the damage that the uh, tumor did to uh, uh, lobes of the brain. And yeah. cer- certain things are damaged and and. You, know, you really can't do anything about it. It's just, just do your best to live with it. And so even though the tumor was benign, it's still, I mean, a lot of people think, oh, it's a benign tumor, so everything's cool. But that's not really the case with medical things sometimes. No, this 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 tumor was the size of a large egg, and it was in my right frontal lobe, and it had tentacle-like appendages uh, uh, going out from it that wrapped itself, that wrapped themselves around my optic nerve and, and uh, damaged my, my pituitary severely. How did this present itself at the time, Lou? How did you know that something wasn't quite right? I was suddenly having long and short memory lapses. Mm-hmm. Not, not everything, but periodically something that I should know. I just, I just could put, couldn't put my finger on it. And uh, the the one that really drove it home for me was I was trying to call my mom and dad who have had the same number for 38 years. And I got past, I got, I got through the prefix, but the last four numbers, I couldn't remember. Wow. They're the same numbers that were, they had when I was living in the house. Yeah. You know, and that really, that really scared me. Yeah, that would, I mean, 
you know, nowadays we would say that was a senior moment, but you weren't, you weren't an, an older gentleman at that point. You're still a young guy, fit, yeah. healthy. And so, yeah, that is a, that's disconcerting. So after a couple of those things, you decided to go and have yourself checked. Thankfully, have yourself checked out. Yes, I did. And uh, I, I had an MRI taken and they, uh, uh, it was very easy. They saw the tumor. It was so mm -hmm. big. Yeah. And uh, what damage it had already done and what potentially it was poised to do. Right. Uh, um, it, it was not in a, a great place to operate, although some of the the doctors here in Rochester were willing to to operate on it. They they were honest with me, and they said they didn't hold out a lot of hope for for a, a real success. And, and I thank them. And and then the one doctor from from Rochester here recommended his friend in Manhattan, who, who was the head of um, brain surgery department in in. A hospital in in New York City, and I I flew down to see him, and he he took another MRI uh, of my brain and called me into his office. He told me he'd like to give me some good news, but honestly thinks I should go home and put my affairs in order. Wow! And that that really that really hit hard. You know, I I, I was holding out hope against hope that that there'd be something that that they could do, but. Uh, it was in a bad place and it was already so big and, and uh, they determined I'd been, I'd been born with it and it's been growing in me for 47 years. And um, so, so I went home and, and I, I was watching TV the night I got home and I think it was a 2020 news program and uh, they had a, they had a segment about, Dr. Richard Black at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And he was, he was the head of the, the brain surgery department. And he had been using lasers to remove inoperable tumors. And, and uh, they, were, they were saying how that's given a lot of people hope. Yeah. And he said that, that, that it's not, really perfected yet but but he was getting better and better results at the end of the segment they gave his office number and i was on the phone the following morning at 7 a.m got in touch with his personal secretary told her my situation and and about the doctors i had seen and what their prognosis was and she said that they had a cancellation on thursday wow. this was tuesday i was talking to her and asked me if i could come in Wednesday or, or yeah, Thursday morning so I could get another MRI. And uh, if all went well, Friday morning, they would be operating. Wow. I mean, the, these, uh, you know, you throw around the word, you know, I don't throw around the word miracle lightly, but these are all these things it's that are happening. You, you discover the tumor. You just happen to stumble along the show with this doctor and, and because of, um, you know, because of your financial means at the time, you're also able to get in to see this guy too. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't just be able to pick up the phone and get in there. Correct. I mean, I'm assuming. Well, I, I don't think he saw me necessarily because of who I am. I didn't, I didn't really 
use Graham. Uh, right. I use my given name, which is Grammatico. Gotcha. And and, and I'm sure that that the, the woman I was on the phone with didn't have a clue. Uh, just knew me as Lewis Grammatico. Right. And I don't, I don't think it was my my celebrity that got me in so soon. It was that they had an opening and I got in. Maybe celebrity wasn't the term. Um, I'm talking about financial means. Like some people wouldn't have the financial means to just fly to another state and get treatment. But luckily, because of all your hard work and your career, you were you're able to do that. That's what I, I guess that's what I meant. Yes, uh, but honestly, most of that surgery was, was covered by my insurance, but 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 not all. You're yeah. right, not all. I, yeah. I I had to to um, or I had to dig deep to save my own life. Yeah. Well, look, we're glad you did. I I wanted to bring this up because I know it's part of your story. I didn't want to close out with this because there's some great, you know, there's some. And this is a, for me, this is a happy moment because you're sitting here in front of us and you're still able to sing and tour and do what you love. So all these things are happy. But at the time, you're, you're painting a very grim, dark story that you had to get through. And so, you know, so happy that you got through it. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Do you, do you know that, that, uh, uh, a year or two after my surgery, I was performing again. I had gained my, my because of the massive steroids I was taking. Yeah, my weight doubled. I was 145 pounds. My 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 adult life, and after the surgery with all the steroids, I I went up to 290. Yeah, well, I saw you. Uh, I saw you at the Universal Amphitheater in around ninety four, ninety five on the Mister Moonlight tour, and you were a lean, mean machine. And then I did see you when you came back, and I think it was uh, right after the surgery. I, I think I saw you at the House of Blues here in L.A. And um, and yes, your the appearance was was drastic, and it was um, you know, and I felt you know I felt bad for you. I mean, I don't know what else to say. It's um. I, so I can't even imagine what you were feeling. Yeah, I, I had to endure a, a, a lot of uh, heckling. That's you know, ridiculous. I, it, it is ridiculous. Someone pays. Right. Someone pays to come out and see the band they love, and then they're going to heckle the singer after having a life-threatening uh, health problems. That is unbelievable. You know, I don't know if it wasn't given a lot of publicity. I don't know if everybody knew about that. They they were shouting up uh, too much pasta, huh, Lou? God. And, um, I mean, so was there, you probably went through a bit of depression then during this time period. As anyone, major, major, de- major depression. I don't know anyone that wouldn't, you know, it's one, it's so weird because you're, you're going to live and you're going to survive but yet you're depressed when you should feel happy. You know what I mean? It's like such a, a, a conundrum, but um, I, I wasn't, sh- I wasn't sure that, that the, the size that I had become and, and the, the amount of medication that I had, I had to take. I wasn't sure that was really living. Yeah, I understand. I get what you're saying, but now you're, you're living. How long did it take you to get past that point of depression probably years it, it it 
took me till about 2007. So, wow. And uh, that, that, that was 10 years. It's a long time. Away from my operation. Yeah. Yeah. Who was your support system during this time? Who did you have in your corner? My, my, my children and, and uh, my close friends and the, and the guys in the band and, mm-hmm. and everything. Uh, it, it was, you know, they, 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 uh, they also encouraged me, you know, because, because e- even though the steroids were putting the weight on, uh, uh, I, I had to, I had to find a way to do something about it myself. I, I, mm-hmm. I couldn't just let the weight go on, on unanswered, you know? Right. I, I, I had to completely throw away everything I owned, uh, uh, as far as clothes go. Mm-hmm because because i was so far away from anything fitting you know i had to i had to buy everything new and and i i went from a a, a 29 waist to a, a 38 waist yeah this was all happened in a matter of about a year yeah i mean it's uh i mean it's 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 just it's unbelievable but yeah to open your closet and see those clothes and feel like i i don't think i'm gonna get back into these it's just uh that's a weight that you just needed to get rid of yes uh but but i i, I did um i i did start following a, a um a, a low protein low fat diet mm-hmm. and uh the the weight came off slowly but steadily yeah and um i mean when i started to to see and and feel weight loss uh, I went after it even harder. You know? Right. Sure. And, and uh, uh, I, I was, it was, it was a no pasta diet. It was, it was no, uh, no, even, even certain fruits I had to give up, you know, because they're so filled uh, with sugar, fruit, sugar. That's all natural, but it is sugar. Right. And, and, uh, about three years after my operation, I developed type two diabetes. I had sleep apnea, and all because and, all this is all stuff attributed to weight gain. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And I honestly, what at a certain point, I was ready to give up. Uh, I just didn't know what to do. I tried everything, and, and you know, I I would lose after three four weeks. I would lose eight or ten pounds, mm-hmm. and then one or two bad days and it would come right back again. You know, what was the thing that kept you going? I, I think I, I didn't want my, my children to see me like that, mm-hmm. to see me perform like that, to see me, uh, around the house, not, not able to do much and falling asleep on the couch, Yeah, you know, in front of them and, and stuff like that. It was just, you know, I was, I was becoming, uh, an invalid. Mm-hmm. really and I, I would i would have conversations with my kids sitting across from me on a sofa and if there was a pause in the conversation i would my eyes would close and my head would hang and i'd be asleep wow yep how was your temper temperament because i would think if this was happening to me at some point you would feel angry and maybe that anger would come out you know to loved ones even though you don't want it to did, was there any of that? Yes, I, I think uh, I displayed my anchor to anyone who would listen and those who didn't want to listen either. Yeah. 
but but uh, I I had to vent. I had to let them know how I was feeling during all this. That I, that I wasn't a, a fat guy hiding in skinny jeans, you know. Yeah. That that I was in a situation that 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 I was following my doctor's orders, and unfortunately, this was a side effect, and these were the results. Well, again, so much to go through. And, and again, can I say one thing? You can. At some point, at some point, about two thousand eight. I had the steroids that I had been taking for over 10 years cut in half. Okay. The amount I was taking. And suddenly I dropped 20 pounds. And that, that was such an encouragement to me that, that I, I picked up a diet that someone had told me about that I had told them earlier that I, I wasn't going to try those anymore because they didn't work. Well, I looked into that one and, and I lost another 20 pounds. There you go. After about three months, three, four months. And, and, and then I started working out with a trainer three times a week. And, and it was a cumulative effect. It, it, it wasn't a, a, a major loss where you go, man, I've lost... 15 or 20 pounds in, in a week and a half. Wow. Isn't that great? No, it was very tedious and slow going, but I was headed in the right direction. I was losing, not gaining. Good. And, and that, that thought in itself was not lost on me. And, and, it, and it made me try whatever I was doing. I tried, I doubled my efforts. Yeah. I mean, results will make you work harder for sure. So yeah. So in 2021, Lou, every day that you wake up and the sun is shining, that's a good day. It certainly is. There's no, there's no blue morning. There's no blue day, if I may. No, there's not. <laughs> okay. All right, Lou, thank you so much for telling us all that story in such detail. And uh, I'm sure it's not easy. There's probably a bit I've of lost, I've lost about 70 pounds. I since, can tell. Since, uh, since, since I've decided to help myself yeah. heal, you know, you're thinner than when I saw you perform last uh, a few years back. So it, you're still, you're still working at it. And that's, yes, uh, that's only going to put more years on your, on your life, which is good for, yes, I know. it's Thank great you. for you and it's good for us too. Uh, all right. All right, Lou, we're going to pivot into, uh, music right now. So Lou way, way back 1977 first foreigner album came out, comes out. Self-titled foreigner, you've been uh, you've been in bands before, and you've been you know doing all the things that uh, uh, struggling musicians trying to do, and now you're literally thrust into the spotlight. This album goes to number four. It uh, it's five million copies sold, and um, it's one of the best debut albums of all time. It really is.
what was it like? Did were you able to enjoy that success, or was it happening so fast that you didn't even realize it? It was happening fast, but but I was still able to enjoy it because, I mean, when we started touring, we 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 were not the headliners playing all our hits. We were we were opening for uh, the Doobie Brothers. Mm-hmm. We had one song that was charted in the top ten, and and so we got huge response for that. And there was a couple uh, uh, AOR hits that got response, but we were an opening act and we got, we were making inroads to winning fans over. Uh, we weren't riding high yet. We were working hard. And uh, one of those songs is Cold as Ice and that's uh, co-written by Lou Graham and Mick Jones and that goes to number six. Just having that, uh, having a song that you wrote come blasting out of the radio, what that must have been an amazing feeling. It was an amazing feeling. And, and uh, uh, Mick and I recall how hard we worked on the song when, when, it, when it got to number four, I think. Yeah. And, and uh, it, it's, it stayed in that area for, for quite a long time. It got a lot of airplay and uh, had staying power. And we, we were very proud of it. And, uh, we we talked talked wistfully about the struggles we had completing that song, and, and uh, how we had to go back and and work it a little more because it, a certain part just didn't sound right, you know. And and we 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 finally uh, got it the way we wanted, and uh, Atlantic Records loved it, and and released it as the second single from the first album. The thing about foreigner songs is. All of the intros are feel iconic to me. Like just in the first five or ten seconds, you immediately are hooked. Like maybe before we even hear Lou Graham, we're hooked. The the instrumental intros are just so killer. And um, obviously, Cold as Ice is one of those. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Rock Solid listeners, it's Pat Francis, and I'm here to tell you that we are stepping up our audio game with the new Shure MV7 podcast microphone. Now look, if you want to get the best audio out of your Zoom interviews, and I know you do, then you need to buy the MV7. It's perfect for podcasting, home recording, and gaming. It plugs right into the USB of your PC or your Mac, and it's ready to go. So take your sound to the next level with the Shure MV7 podcast microphone. You know what? I'm using it right now. Now back to the show. Uh, one of my favorites on the album, if I may, uh, a deep track that you co-wrote, Head Knocker. He drives a 57 coupe, walks with a stoop, 
that's a killer track for me. Love it. Yeah, I love that song too. I also like that Foreigner, you guys used different producers on every album. Like after you have success with the debut, it would have been easy to stick with the same producing team. But you guys, you guys never did that. And I, uh, I kind of like that. Yeah, we, we, we felt that, that, uh, you know, we, we took great pains to get producers that were creative Mm -hmm. and, and maybe even, uh, 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 you know, uppity a little (laughs) bit and, 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 uh, you know, uh, and, and we liked the results of, of the, the headbutting between the producer and the, and the band and, and Mick was co-producing. Yes. So, so we, we, every producer we had, we'd hear, uh, Mick and the producer, uh, uh, talking and then arguing and, and sometimes raising their voices about certain, certain parts of the song that the producer might want to change or here's it a different way. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, so, so it, it was, it was always entertaining and, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, it, it, it gave us a healthy respect, not only for the producer, but how strongly Mick felt about the music too. And how did you find your way into the band Foreigner? Well, um, I was in a band Black Sheep and we were, we were, uh, we were signed to, to, uh, Capitol Records. Mm-hmm. <laughs> first album uh that made some inroads for us and we toured long and hard and 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 then we we did a second album which which actually got more airplay and the sales were good there and and we were opening we were opening for kiss we had we we were signed to open for kiss for their whole tour and they tour a long time yeah that's big at least in those days they did and our first show was in Boston. We played uh, the Boston Gardens. And uh, our first show, we got an encore. Wow. We got, people were clapping. They wanted us to do one more. We turned to Kiss's uh, uh, road manager and said, can we do one more? And he says, yeah, go ahead. You know, That's nice. I, I would have I thought that, that uh, you know, I, I've met other bands in my time that, that uh, were, were not not as not as generous to <laughs> to new bands, you know, and they yeah. would say, "Get off the stage," you know. But but Kiss was was uh, I think that I think they liked our music and our, our attitude on stage, and they let us do an encore. And that night we we were drive we went from Boston. We were driving back home to Rochester, New York, where where we lived. Okay. And uh, 
the truck hit a patch of ice and skidded off the New York State Thruway and tipped over. Oh my God! Yeah, and they got there were the three roadies in in the truck. They got bumped and bruised, but n- nothing serious. But when we finally pried the door open on the truck, the the legs of the Hammond B three were ripped off. The 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 drums were crushed and out of round. They were they were oval, you know, and and uh, heads were broken, cymbals were cracked. Uh, the, the marshal, the marshal amps were, were destroyed. And, and, uh, so, so after that Boston show, we had three days, which, which encompassed Christmas Eve, Christmas, and the day after Christmas. And then the next day, I think was the 27th, we were supposed to be in Miami beach opening for kiss again, playing the Miami highlight. Okay. We not only didn't have transportation down there for the equipment, I would say 60 to 70% of the equipment was unfixable. So immediately our, our manager called Capitol Records to see if they could front us some, some uh, equipment and, and the vehicle to get the equipment down there so we could honor our contract right. and promote our, promote our album. They said no. That they is- said no, and they didn't give a reason. It was just, it was so, so... Uh, unbelievable that 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 we were you know an up-and-coming band for them and 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 they just they just didn't want anything to do with it and and i had to call i had to call kiss's uh tour manager and let him know that we wouldn't be there because number one our our truck wrecked and so did the equipment and number two we couldn't get our record company to front us some money against album royalties to continue the tour. That's unbelievable. I mean, these are the stories that, as a, as a, as a young musician, singer, this probably turned you off of the record business so much at that point. You were probably so disheartened. I was jaded, definitely. Yeah. So, so uh, after, after that happened, you know, we, the, the guys in Black Sheep, we used to meet once a week and sit around and talk about our about if there was any future for the band mm-hmm. and, and could we buy some cheap equipment and start playing clubs again, or, you know, like work our way back up to, to the point we were at. And, and uh, it was just about that time that, that my, my parents called me and said that Mick Jones, somebody named Mick Jones had called their house looking for me Okay, and uh, left his number. And I went over to my parents and called him back. And he told me, well, listen, listen, he was in a band called Spooky Tooth. Yes. They played, they played in Rochester and Black Sheep went to see them. And we went backstage after, because our manager of Black Sheep was an A&M records rep. Okay. Spooky Tooth was on A&M. So did you vaguely know the name Mick Jones? Did it, did it ring any bells with you? No, uh, so-so. You yeah. Know? Uh, uh, but we went backstage after, and, and they sounded really good. And we we told them so. We talked and laughed. And before we left, I gave Mick Jones the two Black Sheep albums, okay. the Capitol Records albums, and told him, "Hey, listen to us. I, I, I hope you like it. You know, we're not we're, we're kind of in the same vein, you know, as, as Spooky Tooth, and uh, you know, just enjoy this." He said he would, and, and apparently he he. Enjoyed it a lot, and and uh, when he left Spooky Tooth and was about to put together 
a new band, unnamed band. Uh, he he auditioned a lot of people and was not quite satisfied with with he didn't think that after all those auditionings that he had the right guy yet. So so after all that, then he called me and asked me if I would he'd send me a ticket. I would fly down to New York and and uh, and audition. I, I thanked him, but I told him no. I says I, I I'm loyal to the band I'm in. We're in real dire circumstances now, but. But I, I, I'm not going to be the guy to walk out right. and go play someplace else, you know. And and he says, well, I'll call you back in a week. He says, think, think about it. He said, he said we, we really, you know, if, if you're the one, we'd like to get busy right now. Because at this point, your band is established and Foreigner is not. There's no Foreigner, really. So, so on paper, you definitely made the right decision at that point because you have a band that has two albums. And here's a guy starting a band but who knows if that's ever even going to happen yes so in the meantime i went back and told my guys in my band about the phone call and what had happened and that he asked me to come to new york and audition and i told him no and the guys in my band says you told them no what the hell's wrong with you you've got to go you you get on that plane and go down there and audition and sing your tail off and if you get the job more power to you. Wow. Those are some yeah. friends. I hope they're still yes. your friends. Uh, I couldn't believe they were saying that to me. And and, and that made me feel worse, you know, <laughs> but, but uh, I did go down there and, and, and I auditioned. I had a, I had a, nap, a small knapsack with me with, with one extra t-shirt, uh, a change of underwear and socks, you know? Yeah. And I was there two weeks, <laughs> you know, w- I was wearing one pair of clothes and the other one I was hand washing in, in the, in the sink and hanging it up to dry. What are you, uh, what are you auditioning? What songs are you singing? Are you singing uh, Mick Jones originals or are you guys just singing some yes, covers? Yes. Tunes? He, he had feels like the first time written already. Okay. And he had it more with the world's written. I am the captain of this body of I'm not sure what else. I think I sang three songs. We, we, my audition was in a recording studio. So Mick, let me hear, let me hear the demos with him singing. And then he sent me right out in the recording studio to, to, to record my, my audition. And when we were done, he and the rest, he and the other guys in the band were like, really good, really good. Lou. Yeah, really good. Uh, and, and then Mick says, uh, can you, are you busy tonight? Do you want to come over to my apartment and, and maybe we'll try writing something together? And, and, and uh, I said, sure. So I went over there and met his wife and, and had dinner. And Mick and I wrote Long, Long Way From Home that night. That is unbelievable. 
Yep. It's unbelievable. And, and we were doing we started doing that almost every night and we were we were either completing a song or or getting an idea that was really good and we would complete it the next time we met. But but then the next time the, the band got together to learn some of these songs, I said I says I said to them after after the rehearsal was over, look guys, I says I've got one pair of jeans. I keep washing <laughs> a t-shirt and my underwear every other day. I says I need if I says I need to to, to really get some clothes. I says, and, and although we've been practicing and I've been writing with Mick, no one's ever told me. So I'm going to ask you: Am I in or not? <laughs> What's going on? Yeah, no, you're in. You're in. You're in. You know. And is are the other members set in place at that point? Is it is it Al on bass and Ian and and all the guys? Dennis. It was it was it was Al on keyboards. Um, Ed on bass. No, it was another no. bass player. Okay. And another drummer too. Dennis wasn't there. Okay. And and, and the bass player and the drummer. After we did our first demos, mm -hmm. they they we we went to go back and start rehearsing again. And, and they came in with their coats on and, and said that, that after listening to the demos and, and hearing the reaction of, of record companies, uh, uh, they didn't think the band was going to go anyplace. And the one guy moved to California and the other guy enlisted in the Coast Guard. All right. They didn't want it. No, they, they, didn't, they, didn't, think, they didn't think it was going to be anything. All right. You know? Well, the, you, don't, and, and, you don't want guys like that in the band, so that was good. Yeah, it was good, and and right away we got Dennis and Ed Gagliardi. Yeah, uh, Ian was already in the band. Well, it's too late. We're no longer one. I don't want you. The damage is done. I treated you unkind Well, it's over now And I'm on the run I don't want you The damage is done Okay, cool. All right. And then, uh, and then, well, you know, the rest is history. But let's move so on. Say, yeah. yeah, let's move on to Double Vision. This album goes to number. Well, hang on. A oh, okay. I want, I want okay. to let you know. Uh, uh, just, just to go back, just a little bit. Sure. We we rehearsed in our manager's. He had he had a whole floor in in a in a building in Manhattan, and he had his offices on the outside. On the inside, w was a rehearsal, uh, place for us to to write songs and rehearse. We had about five labels come and hear our songs the the demos that we recorded and heard us live we were refused by all of them and then atlantic records came and they heard everything and the the president who came and heard us said he really liked the band but but he 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 thought the songs needed work uh sorry sorry <laughs> but but the a and r guy was john kaladna yeah, we, I know John Kaladner. Yes, and he came back by himself to the re rehearsal studio the next day. 
And he said, I love the songs. He says, I love the band. He says, the songs need a little work dynamically. They need to build a little bit more. He says, if we can work on the arrangements to get the best out of the songs and shorten them up a little bit, because our songs were, I don't know, you know, we, we had two guitar leads in every song. They were over four and a half minutes. He says, we got to get these songs down to three minutes, no more, no less. Okay. You know? And so we, we cut some, cut some of the blubber off the songs and worked on the arrangement a little more and made them tight and compact. And after we did that to about four or five songs, he, he called back, called the president of Atlantic back in and we played him the same songs only, you know, tighter. On. Yeah. yeah. Tighter. Yes. And, and, uh, we, we signed the contracts that day. Wow. Well, thank you, John Kladner for having, yes. the, having a vision that other guys yeah, might not he, have. He, he's always been a, a friend and a mentor for us. Always. Amazing. Double vision. A lot of times a band has a sophomore slump. You guys did not. This thing goes to number three, two top five singles, including yeah. hot blooded, which goes to number three and then double vision goes to number two. crazy really crazy i remember when we first started working on double vision we were super conscious of the sophomore slumps yeah you know we we were seeing it with good bands that were around us and it killed some of them yeah you know they they, they never had a third album and we were determined that that the writing was going to be exemplary and and the playing too and we had keith olsen who had just finished Rumors. And, and that was a good match. Him and Mick got along really good. And uh, the, the band was, after touring on the first album for a long time, the band was was gelling. It sounded like, mm -hmm. a, sounded like a band, you know?
uh, although there 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 were some some you know some 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 problems with songs that that we didn't think were up to snuff. There were a couple of them that we we put aside and and wrote something else, and that ended up being on the song. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, after, after years later, I listened to the demos and the other two songs, and they were damn good. <laughs> Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The first two albums each have four songs that are written just by Mick Jones. Um, Throughout the Foreigner career or process, did Mick ever bring a song to you that you didn't feel comfortable singing? You didn't, because you're, you're the singer. You're the guy that has to say the words. Yeah, did you ever have any of those things where you were like, I, I don't think I can sing these words, Mick? Later, later on, later on in the band, yeah, like in the in the late eighties, mm-hmm. when 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 uh, Mick was was very enamored with the synthesizer, yeah, and and, and uh, you know we, we were real fortunate to have a a big hit with "Waiting for a Girl Like You." I think that went to number two. I'm not sure. I think it was in the top five for sure. Yeah, it definitely was. Right after Waiting for a Girl, the next album, uh, I Want to Know What Love Is, mm-hmm. was the second single. You know, usually you wait to the third or fourth single. To release the ballad, the ballad right. Because you, guys are, Atlantic, you guys are a rock band. Yeah. Atlanta, Atlantic wanted to re- release the album first, and we talked them into putting something else first. And they said, well, we're sure going to release it second. And and it was our first and only number one single. And we we were in uh, Scandinavia d- doing doing press and we were doing television shows, mm-hmm. you know. And, and we got back to our hotel and uh, we we were we were hanging around in somebody's room talking about the band and this and that. And all of a sudden, the phone rang, and it was... Uh, was it the label? Yes, it, w- it was the president. His name slipped in my... I, I don't know it either, but okay. It's a, uh, um, a big wig in the label. Well, well, he said, he said, congratulations, you guys. And we're like, what? He goes, I want to know what love is, is number one around the world. He says that hardly ever happens. Yeah. 
He says, and you guys have done it. Across the board, number one. Yep. Blessing and a curse, maybe. It, it definitely was because I thought I want to know what love is came too soon after waiting for a girl like you. And and, and although there were good rock songs on the, the um, Agent Provocateur album, they didn't, really didn't see the light of day. Some good songs got totally passed over because after... I want to know what love is. Atlantic didn't release any more singles from that album. That's ridiculous. So it was that was yesterday, and I want to know what love is. And I think I think that was it. They might have released one more, but but they didn't pick a good one, and and the album was over. Well, that album kicks off brilliantly with Tooth and Nail. I mean, that yes. is a tough rocking song. That, that that scored really big in the AOR market, you know. It was yeah. A, uh, and and there were some other good good rock songs and good mid tempo songs. Exactly. Yeah. That was yesterday's a great mid tempo song. Down on Love yeah. is a great mid tempo song. The, that was the first single. Yeah. That was yesterday, and I thought Down on Love would have been a great follow up. Absolutely.
it was like, who are these guys? Don't they hear? Don't they hear more single? Have they had enough? After I want to know what love is. Yeah. Are they on to somebody else now? They don't want to be bothered with us. There's so many other good songs. Why don't they release another one or another two? You know, and and they just didn't, and we were we were miffed. Yeah, they didn't. They did not work the album the way they should have, given the success no. of that one song. That's right. Now, you co-wrote that song, but you don't have a writing credit. That's correct. And I know this is a story that's out there. From what I understand is how it went down is after the songwriting was done, you guys decide on what percentage of the song each of you is going to get. That, that's what we did on every song we co-wrote. Because sometimes on the credits, your name is first. So I always figure, well, Lou must have brought the most to this song or if Mick's name is first. I, 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 I had the initial idea. Yes. Okay. So, and with, uh, I want to know what love is when you guys decided on what the percentage would be, Mick offered you a quite a low percentage. And so you just told him to take it 5%. And so you just said, then just take it. Basically. Uh, I said, that, that's what you want, Mick, by insulting me with 5%. I know you want the whole thing. I says, I says, I know you pretty well by now. I says, just take it. Do you have any regrets about not taking the 5% or would, I mean, given, no. given, okay, good. But given that that song is everywhere at weddings, at bar mitzvahs, it's everywhere, but no, you'd rather stand and hold your ground. And because that is insulting. 5% is insulting. Yes, it is. I, I got to assume that that was something that took years to get over. Maybe, maybe you've never gotten over that. Maybe you've never gotten no, by. I've never gotten over it. I, I don't blame you. And does Mick just ignore the fact that you haven't gotten over it? Yes. All right. That's yes, cra- he does. Uh, crazy. He, he had a home. Uh, I lived in, in Katona in Westchester, n- north of uh, Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he had a home in Bedford Hills. Okay. We were about ten minutes apart from each other, so I would uh, I would come over to his house and we would write. Mm-hmm. We we spent hours and hours on on songs, writing, preparing them for the album and stuff. And that song we must have spent a month on getting it the way we want to. Yeah, you know, I put I put words in it. He'd like them. Then three days later, he'd have something else that he liked better, and and I'd be singing that and and. Uh, I would put the I put the the basic melody to mm-hmm. it, you know, and, and uh, after listening to that and telling me how much he liked it, he tinker with that too. You yeah, know? and, and uh, it, it was frustrating because because he was undermining my confidence in yeah. myself. Yeah, and just the fact that he would you would you would do this and then he would tinker with it. You've given him the beginning of the idea, even if he tinkers with it and changes it to something different you've started that ball rolling. So that is why you deserve more than 5%. I mean, again, craziness, craziness. Here's another thing. While while Mick was in, we had, we were at a studio where there were two recording rooms Mm -hmm. in one recording room was Mick. And, and, um, I think it was Alex Sadkin. Okay. Producer. Yeah. And they were working with the choir, okay. okay get, getting the, the the voicings right and and the, the sway of the song, so so it feels like church, you know. Yeah. I was in the other room with another engineer singing the lead vocal. Yeah. Nobody came in 
to to see how I was doing. Nobody came in to see how I was doing. Nobody came in to 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 say that's really great, but wouldn't it be better if you did this instead of that? Nobody did anything. And and when I finished the lead vocal, I finished it. And, and finally, they they said, "Nice job, nice job, Lou." That's about it. And and uh, so so the the lead vocal of the song was so downplayed mm-hmm. because because of the the beautiful choir and 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 their voicings and 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 what they lend to the song. I think I think the choir idea was, was fantastic, and, and uh, there's nothing like it. Well, there's don't. Nothing, Lou, don't sell yourself short on that lead vocal. It is no, no, incredible. I'm I'm, yeah, I'm not. Uh, I, I, I was saying that only to to acknowledge what they were so excited about and taken with that they couldn't even come in and see how the lead vocal was doing. And and, and but but I think the lead vocal is one of the best vocals I ever sang for Foreigner. It's uh, it's it's so so expressive and goes from from you know a. Uh, uh, holding back and being not sure of yourself mm-hmm. to shouting out, you know, yeah. I want to know what, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it took a lot to, to, to do it that way for me. You know, I wasn't, I, I've never sung anything like that before and I have never sung anything like it since. Well, it, it's incredible and it's something to be proud of. And I just, uh, I just want I'm people really proud of it. good, good. And I want people to know that, um, you know, if they didn't know the story of the songwriting, I, I wanted to put it out there because it's important. Head games. You work with Roy Thomas Baker, who had quite a pedigree. How was he to work with in the studio? <laughs> uh, I, I, I'll just give you a, a normal day. <laughs> I'm laughing uh, already. I'm laughing at what might be okay. coming. I remember the first couple days we worked there. We started at about nine thirty in the morning, and we go till about one one the following morning. Okay. And then everybody would go home, and, and I I would ask Mick and Roy, what time do you want me here the, the next day? And they said about 9, 30, 10 o'clock. I said, oh, good, okay, I'll be here. So I would come in at 9, 30 or 10 o'clock. There was no one there. Even Roy's engineer was not there. And I'd go to the front desk, and I'd say, did anybody call in saying, saying when they were coming in or where they were? And she said, uh, Mick called in. She says, but I couldn't understand him. Partying. All night. With Roy. All night. And they were toast. Ugh. So I got there at 930 and they came in at 6 p.m. <laughs> and what happened? I was, there, what I was ha- there all day waiting for them. So there's nothing you guys can do while you're waiting? You just have to sit? I couldn't do anything myself. Okay. I, I, there was nothing I could do. All right. But you were there and ready to go when they arrived. Well, I was there. I don't know if I wasn't that ready to go anymore. No, you're probably pissed off. I was very pissed off. Well, and they had, a, they all had a good laugh about it and broke over, open a couple bottles of champagne. <laughs> well, despite, uh, despite the story of the creation of this album, I, I really do enjoy head games. Uh, you did get hits, dirty white boy and the title track.
And one of the songs I really like, one of my faves, is the one that you wrote with Ian McDonald, Do What You Like. I, I love that tune. You like that song? I really do like that song. Uh, do you not uh, like was, it? Uh, that was the first time I ever wrote with Ian. Just the two of us. Well, you guys it did, came out pretty good, didn't it? Well, it? It came out great, and you probably you probably had to write together because the other guys weren't around. <laughs> you, you had to do it. All right, uh, 1981. Here's, I mean, you guys have had success the whole time from the beginning, but now this Foreigner Four really takes off. It's your fourth album, but you also scaled the band down to a four piece. Why did that happen? Why are Al and Ian gone? Well, you know, you know, uh, um, although I think Head Games was a good album, it it, it was a it, it sounded unfinished to Mick and myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I think the arrangements and the creativity from the production standpoint was not sharp. Yeah. There were no little ear ticklers there to, to just just to, uh, to tease you a little bit and make you enjoy it more. It was a very bland album. The songs were good and 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 the mixes were pretty good, but but a lot of the songs to me didn't feel finished. It felt like they they should have been massaged a little more and and maybe the second half of the song were the lead mm-hmm. and the, and the out courses are. Could it could have been more creative and and uh, taking the song to a, a higher high? It, it, it seemed to me that we reached a certain point in the middle of the song, and the song stayed dynamically like that all gotcha. the way to the end. All right, and, and we got we got panned for that album. Uh, the critics really said that in in a lot of ways it was a disappointment. They didn't feel like we had grown any. And, and they definitely didn't think that the Head Games album was even as good as the first two. What's funny is it's still a successful album. It still goes multi-platinum and you still have hits. And any other band would enjoy, would, if it, any other band whose album was called a disappointment uh, but had that kind of success, they wouldn't care. But you guys care. And so with Foreigner 4, you want to hit another Grand Slam. Yeah, because, because I think uh, Double Vision was... Uh, six times platinum. Yeah, and, and, and uh, Head Games was, I think, two and a half. Yeah, it was really a fall off. It was a fall and, off. And and here's another thing, uh, uh, Dirty White Boy, the first single from the album. Yep. In the uh, Midwest, that song was was considered to be a racial racial slam. Okay. And uh, church groups 
had big bonfires like at a school or something and people were burning all their foreigner albums and their foreigner oh t-shirts and paraphernalia and and that spread to boston and the same thing happened in boston and i would say there was about 40 or 50 rock radio stations that wouldn't play head games or anything from the album it well in, it's so funny because in in the song you're saying i'm a dirty white boy yes. you're talking about yourself or the person singing it, the character in the song. So that's, uh, that's always craziness to me when things like that happen. Are you worried what your friends see? Will it ruin your reputation loving me? Cause I'm a dirty white boy. So, Foreigner 4, co-produced with Mutt Lang, everything I read is that he's a taskmaster in the studio. Is it multiple, multiple takes and layers? And what's it like in the studio with, a, I'll call him a genius because his discography tells me he's a genius, you know, with uh, Def Leppard and ACDC and The Cars and Shania Twain. I mean, it's incredible. So what was it like working with him? It was it was all right for the most part. He was a very nice guy, very knowledgeable in music, mm-hmm. and and uh, really liked the band. You know, uh, uh, he if he didn't, he wouldn't have worked with us. Right. Know? But but um, you know, we 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 for instance, we were working on Jukebox Hero. Okay. Standing in the rain with his head hung low, couldn't get a ticket. It was a sold out show. And uh, uh, jukebox hero starts off. The the, the dynamic is low, mm-hmm. and the vocal standing in the ring, you're low. Yeah. You know? and, and and then it, it starts. Gotta keep a rocking, just can't stop. Then it's jukebox hero. You know? <laughs> right. He 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 says he says he loved that. Why why couldn't I I get the the rest of the lyrics like jukebox? In other words, scream the whole verse out. Scream it out. And I says, I says, where's the dynamic there? Where where do you go from there? Yeah. If you do that, and 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 that's all you can do, people are going to turn the channel by the second verse. Yeah. I says, I says, don't you see that? And he said no. <laughs> and and he oh, that song was a disappointment to him. He, he said it. Well, he was pro- he was and proven he, wrong. He, sadly, he really had um, ACDC on the brain. Yeah. He compared everything we did that that 
how about trying this? And as soon as he picked up a guitar to show us what he meant, I knew, I not only know who the band he was, was pretending to be, I, I knew the song. Yeah. You know, and he just wanted us to be a hard ass, uh, one dynamic only thrash band, you know? Yeah. And, and we weren't that. And we, we, uh, we, it was a, an ongoing conversation throughout the whole, uh, uh, when it, ran the course of the album you know well i love acdc but they do their one thing and you guys can do that thing too but you guys do other things as well let me talk about a few songs from the album urgent which features that amazing junior walker sax solo were you in the studio when junior recorded that solo i sure was and how what a thrill that must have been for you guys well i was a junior walker fan anyways from from his Hits shotgun and uh, what does it take to give your love to me? That, that kind of uh, yeah. ballad he did. He always played. He, he had a good voice and he played great sax. So so we 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 were doing jukebox hero and we had the or I mean urgent. We had uh, we had we had the second verse, the second chorus done, mm-hmm. and a reintro. And we didn't know where that intro was going. Uh, we tried Mick playing guitar lead, and it was all right. We didn't know what we were. We, we almost lost the song because we we were we were at a dead end uh, creatively as as what to do to to lift that song higher to the to the to be the song we wanted it to be. Yeah, and I I was just leafing through Village Voice while they were talking at the at the over the over the soundboard and. and I saw uh, Junior Walker at the at the Village Gate or something like that, some 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 rock blues club, sure, in Manhattan, and and I said, what about Junior Walker? And at first they went, and and then all of a sudden you see their their eyes light up. I says he's playing right down the street. He goes on at eleven thirty. <laughs> so so it was got it had to be quarter to eleven when I said that. Right. So we hung around another half hour and we walked. We must have walked about 12 blocks to the club and we heard him playing his band. He and his band were great. His son played drums for him. And as we later found out, his son managed him. All right. So so we asked him if he would consider playing sax on, on a song we were putting together. And, and we just told him that the, the song is at a dead stop and, and we know what the song needs and, and it needs you, Junior. And and he he was like he looked at his son. He goes, "Oh my, yeah." And we said we were like, "Well, can you come by tomorrow at about noon?" And he says, "No, no, no." He says, "I'm ready to play now." Wow! It was already going on one o'clock. And he's warmed up though from doing a show. He's ready. Yes, he was. And, and so he came in and he he played a solo for Urgent. And it was it was it had good moments, but it wasn't great all the way through. And uh, we we listened to it, and then we looked at him. And he was putting his sax away. <laughs> he putting thought, his sax away. He thought he had it. No, 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 Junior. Wait, not so fast. You know, that's pretty good. But but could you play something else with a little more aggression? Oh yeah, you know. And then he's screaming all the way through it, and that that wasn't what we wanted either. And he had, he played about five takes. And after he, we told him we had it, after he left, we put bits and pieces of all five takes in there and built 
an incredible dynamic solo that ended with him at the end of it, you know? guys built this solo in such a way that you make it so hard for the person who has to play that live every night (laughs) (laughs) you guys weren't even thinking about that but that's that is an amazing story um but it it sounded like it was it was done in one take it sure does it's one it's one of the greatest solos on any rock song it's amazing so so let me finish we after the album came out and the song was huge on the radio it was a big hit and we played the L.A. Forum. And Junior lives in L.A. Okay. And we called him and asked him if he wanted to come on stage and jam with us on Urgent. And he shows up in this chartreuse fluorescent suit. Okay. You know, with, 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 a, with a, a wild shirt and a little derby hat. Okay. And, and we were like, I wonder what he's going to play. So we did the song and it came time for his solo and he played it note for note the way it is on the record. And it sounded unbelievable. Brought the house down. That is fantastic. I love it. So he, uh, he did his homework and learned and that's incredible. I'm sure his son had something to do with that. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Uh, one of the songs I love on Foreigner Four is Luann, and that's not a name that I hear ever. I don't. I think I know maybe one Luann. Is that about a real person? Is there a real Luann? Yes, Who is Luann? Well, when I was in one of my my first rock bands when I was in high school, um, the the keyboard player lived about a block away from me. Okay, he was. A nice guy, real a really great player. Uh, uh, had, had 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 already auditioned for the Eastman School of Music and was accepted uh, when he got out of high school. And and we were only sophomores at this time. Okay. And uh, we used to go down to to the lake. There was there's a beach with all custard stores and hot dog stands and things like that. It's a great 
place for kids to go and everybody drive down there in their muscle cars and park them next to each other. And it was, it was just a ball. And, and, uh, so, so we met these three girls, uh, there were three of us and we met three girls and we talked to them and this and that, it was a lot of fun, but, but, uh, we, we just were friendly with them, but, but the keyboard player, Joe met, met a girl named Luann. Okay. And he fell hard for her. And they were boyfriend and girlfriend for, it wasn't a long time. It was maybe a little over a year. And um, he was the perfect gentleman at first. But near the end, when they broke up, she, she, was, she was confiding in me that, that he was uh, verbally abusive to her. And, and, and even got a little physical with her. Okay. Gave her a shove and stuff, you know. And, and, uh, I got real mad at him and I, I had a real stern talking to him, mm-hmm. you know, and, and realized afterwards that I loved her. Wow. And, and, uh, you know, that, 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 that Joe blew it and, and maybe I had a chance now. Did you get a chance? No. No. All right. Unre- unrequited love. Unrequited love. Uh, but, but I didn't write that song until, until maybe 10 years later. I had bits and pieces of it in my head, and I'd record it on a cassette. Mm-hmm. But, but, but it was only it was only when I was, I think I, I really finished it uh, around the time of, of Head Games. Yeah. And, and it found its way onto four hundred four, and it's it's. It, I think the sound of it is very Everly Brothers. It is, and I can guarantee you, when Lou Ann heard that, she knew that it was it was for her and about her. So pretty cool. That's right. And it uh, wasn't from Joe. No, it was not. It, it was, was from, from Lou. Lou. I promise to only keep you for an hour. And even though we haven't scratched the surface, I thank you so much. I mean, we didn't even get to your solo career, which is incredible. Uh, the song we Midnight. Can pick this up. We can pick this up at a later date. Let's pick it up at a later date. I would love that. Maybe after the tour is over, maybe, uh, you know, early next year, I would love to do a part two with Lou. That's what I'll call it. That sounds great. Part two with I would Lou. Love it too. Now, Lou, before we go, I do have one question for you. My playout song today, if you can pick one song from your entire recorded career, what song should I use today for the playout song? It'll, oh, it'll, playout. It'll, it'll end the episode. What song would you choose? Okay, let me think for a second. It's tough, I know. 
How about the song I'm Gonna Win? Excellent. Excellent. That's what we're going to play out then, Lou. Thank you so much for your time. I'll see you in November here at the Canyon Club for sure. So everybody, please enjoy I'm Gonna Win. Thank you, Lou. Thank you. See you soon.
Okay, that's it, Lou. Uh, Great. So fun. And I will definitely... For me, too. Good. I'm glad. I will definitely uh, get in touch with Bob down the road, and we'll do a part two. 